I'm Shachar Azani, and in the news, continued protests in Israel against the government-proposed judicial overhaul. Thousands of anti-government protesters massed this week at Israel's Ben-Gurion International Airport and blocked streets with large rallies in Tel Aviv and in other cities across the country as nationwide demonstrations erupted in response to the government advancing part of its judicial overhaul legislation. Over 70 people were arrested. On Tuesday, a nationwide day of disruption was called after the Knesset approved the first reading of a controversial bill to curtail the Supreme Court's oversight hours. The legislation canceling the reasonableness criterion used by the courts is one of several bills proposed by Israel's coalition government. This was the first Knesset approval of a judicial overhaul bill. Professor Yaniv Roznai is an associate professor and vice dean at the Harry Radziner Law School and co-director at the Rubinstein Center for Constitutional Challenges at Reichman University in Herzliya. Professor Roznai, welcome and so happy to have you on JBS. Thank you for the kind invitation. Um, let's dive straight in. You have been one of the most prominent voices in Israel against this judicial overhaul. So let's talk about the issue at hand, reasonableness. What is it exactly? And what does the recent legislation say about it? So I think perhaps before we go into the reasonless doctrine, it's important to say that this proposal of abolishing the reasonableness doctrine in administrative review was originally one aspect of a much larger package of proposed reforms. And I think that this is one of the problems nowadays in Israel, because the Israeli people, at least those who protest in the street, do not look at the reasonless doctrine, whatever this means, on its own in isolation, but they regard it as one segment one increment in a long list of probably steps that will arrive in the future. So I think it's very important to keep that in mind in our debates. Uh, now, what the reason this doctrine means is very basically that every governmental official in Israel, be it a minister, the prime minister, the cabinet as an organ, um, a municipality, they all have to consider the proper considerations before making a decision and giving them proper weight. That's, in a nutshell, the reasonless doctrine in administrative review. So basically, every administrative agency is obliged according to this doctrine. And uh, more so, the court, the Israeli Supreme Court, can examine the reasonableness of various uh, decisions that are taken. Uh, and it has been, in the last, I think, 30 years or so, quite a strong tool uh, in upholding the rule of law, uh, uh, because uh, it has been mainly used, it uh, has been mainly used uh, when it comes to appointments. For example, to give just one example, the appointment of Ayadeh, right. uh, of the Sash party, uh, of Shash party, because he was uh, not long ago convicted for tax fraud. Therefore, the recent uh, appointment of him as a minister of Interior First, uh, as Interior First, was declared to be an unreasonable appointment uh, in lack of the uh, undermining of the rule of law. Uh, so this is very much, in a nutshell, uh, the reason this doctrine. 
Um, Professor, you mentioned the words abolish the reasonableness doctrine, and some uh, members of the coalition view this as a limitation or a redefining of the boundaries of the reasonable doctrine. So where is the truth? Is it an abolishment or is it a limitation? That, that's a very good question because the original statement of our Minister of Justice, Yeriv Levin, uh, it was very brief. He said abolishing reasonableness when he proposed his judicial overhaul in January. Uh, so one could understand from that statement that the, the entire doctrine of reasonableness will be completely abolished. That is not precisely the case now. So now we are not proposing to abolish reasonableness to all the bureaucracy, to all the administrative agencies, but to abolish it only to the government, the cabinet, and the ministers. Now, this is a bit tricky because prima facie, this seems like only a limitation of the doctrine. But in reality, this would be tantamount to a complete abolishment of the doctrine by the mere fact that any minister can decide upon issues that belong to the bureaucrats that are subordinated to the minister. So if there is a problematic decision, you can simply bring it up to the minister, he will sign the decision, and then that's it. It would be immune from this administrative review of reasonableness. So I think it would be quite fair to say that this is abolishing this doctrine, uh, at the very least when it comes to the government and the ministry. Um, Professor, another claim made by critics is that reasonableness is a very hazy, unclear term. With what it simply does, according to them, is it's putting the judge in the driver's seat, favoring the justice's considerations over those of the elected officials. How do you respond to this claim? Uh, I, I do agree that this doctrine is quite vague. It is not a very strict and narrow doctrine. Because the doctrine says, as I said before, you need to consider the proper considerations and give them proper weight. What is the proper weight is something that the court decides. So in that respect, it is quite clear that the doctrine is vague. And that is why it was actually criticized for, for, for a long period of time. However, I do not agree that the doctrine places the judges in the uh, driver's seats. This is not the case. It is more that it puts the judges in the, you know, in the red light position. Because what the judiciary is basically saying, say, look, we, we see the decision, please let us know or explain to us the considerations, what was behind that decision, and show us that you have done the proper work before you made that decision. You have considered the right considerations. Prove it, show it to us. And in that respect, the, the heavy lifting of the doctrine it's not in the court decision-making. It's actually in this sort of Democles that is above the administration. And when they know that they have to prove something, then they do a proper job when making the decision. That's the heavy weight of the doctrine. Now, the court, what it does, it gives the administrators a very wide scope of reasonness. There's a very wide scope and the court hardly intervenes. So only when there is an extreme unreasonableness, then the court would intervene. And I think this claim here that I'm making, uh, it is quite visible empirically. Because right. if, you, if you examine the cases 
in which the court has intervened. I was about uh, to ask you just that. On, on claims of unreasonableness, right. uh, they are sparse. Uh, so in percentage, we're talking about two or three percent of those actions that are challenged in court, which is a very uh, low number of interventions. But it's not just a, 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 a matter of, of quantity, how much the court intervenes. It's also, it's also a matter of, of, uh, of quality. The court hardly intervenes in the big issues at the macro level. Usually it is in the micro level, things that affect the individuals. Uh, so to give, I don't know, one or two examples. So there was a case when the a municipality wanted to build a school uh, near a factory that could affect the environment and the, and the health of the, of, the, of the students, of the pupils. Uh, so the court basically tells the municipality, you haven't considered enough, you haven't given enough weight to the health issues or consider a decision that uh, in Stirot, uh, uh, the court told the government, you need to make sure there's enough safety rooms for the kids in schools. So in case of bombing, they can, they can run to a, uh, in enough time, free time to a safety zone. Uh, so basically the court imposes upon the government to make sure that the, the school is safe. Uh, so in these cases, it's not about the big policy issues. It's about minor issues that affect the individual. Day to day uh, life. But, but, but Professor, I wanna really take, uh, take you from that point exactly. Um, in an age where there are other doctrines, other considerations available for the court for judicial review, like proportionality, why is reasonableness described as the one essential tool? Without it, will the courts not be able to criticize or review administrative decisions? Is this really the thin line between democracy and so-called dictatorship? That, that's a terrific question. Uh, uh, and, and, here, and I think the, the answer is a bit tricky. There are still other doctrines in administrative review, such as proportionality, for example, but proportionality is applicable only to matters of uh, constitutional rights and fundamental rights that are protected. So let's put that aside. And other doctrines such as, for example, foreign considerations. You cannot consider foreign considerations when you uh, make a decision and you cannot discriminate. Okay, so we have the non-discrimination doctrines. Right. However, and that is the big however. The implications of abolishing reasonableness will be mainly in removing from office and appointing from office gatekeepers, such as the attorney general or legal advisors to uh, the ministries. And here is what I fear. Let's assume that the other doctrines still apply. But if you now remove from office the attorney general or the legal advisor to your ministry, and you appoint a yes man that would be subordinated to the political will of the minister, who would enforce these other doctrines? No one. And that is the main problem. I think that the main implications of abolishing reasonless will be in removing from office, in appointing uh, officials, and in providing budgets to people who are closer to the government. I think this will be the main three issues. And this in turn, will create what we call Caesarian politics. Uh, and, and that is why I, I, I'm afraid. It is not, the question is not whether this, chain, whether this change is the end of democracy. That is not the question. 
The question is whether this change will remove more checks and balances and provide the government with more power and more opportunities for constitutional capture. Or, and, or Professor, um, if I were trying to represent the other side, would provide the government more tools to govern? Because we know that the legal advisors within ministries and attorneys general, uh, these could really be um, a, a tremendous hindrance, especially when the issues are not so clear cut, when they're matters of discretion, judgment and consideration. So shouldn't their government be allowed to rule? Uh, wasn't this the, the issue in Israel's elections, what they call as, you know, rule of law and governance across the country? That's terrific. I, I wish that has been the case. And the reason I suspect that is not the case is because three months ago, the president of the state, when he proposed the reform, he suggested that appointment of minister and policy issues would not be subordinated to the doctrine of reasonableness. And this was rejected after seven minutes by the government. And even yesterday, one of the leading administrative law scholars in Israel, Professor Yav Dutan, came to the committee and proposed his own proposal that when the government, when the cabinet has big policy issues, right? So this is the governance. They want right. to govern with their own policy. Then the court should not be able to interfere. But the coalition, the current coalition, do not does not want to make this distinction between everyday issues and matters and policy. They want to govern without any limitations, and 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 that's quite risky to my mind. Right. Um, the 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 reasonableness criterion, as you said, evolved over time and more intensely in the past few decades. Critics again claim that Israel had a proper uh, judicial review and court of law long before it and without it. So how necessary is it really and why? I think it's a very important question because what we see now, and as I said earlier, the, the, the doctrine of reasonableness has been criticized in the last three decades. However, what is now on the table is not going back to the, I don't know, 1980s, to the earlier reasonableness doctrine, which was really you know an extreme arbitrary decision-making that the court can intervene, but completely abolishing when it comes to ministers and the cabinet. So we're not even going back to the early and, and, and very good days of the 1980s, but this would be going back before to the 1950s, because this would be completely abolishing administrative review when it comes to reasonableness. So I don't even see how these claims against the broadening of the doctrine in the last few years, how is it manifested in the current uh, proposals. Oh, so. It is not. You know, the, the Prime Minister Netanyahu referenced um, in recent videos the support of one Supreme Court Justice, Noam Solberg, to, of the idea, the idea behind this legislation. So I, I want to ask you a question that might be in the minds of so many of our viewers now. How could an idea endorsed or the idea itself, the principle by Supreme Court justice in Israel be considered, you know, on the verge of, you know, losing democracy or dictatorship? Shouldn't the issue uh, just be a discussion among jurists rather than what we're seeing now? Yeah, that, that's spot on, because you see, when, when the prime minister himself, he calls this proposal Solbergismness, right. right? He needs this labeling. To, to, to bring support to the decision. Uh, now, it is true that Justice Solberg, uh, he gave a speech and later on this speech was published as an article in a magazine called the Shiloh. And in this uh, article, Justice Solberg does proposes this distinction between elected officials and non-elected officials. 
and in which he claims that there is a very strong rationale in applying broad reasonness to the unelected officials, but not to elected officials. So basically making this distinction. However, two important disclaimers here. One is that Justice uh, Solberg never suggested that the legislator, through a constitutional amendment, would limit the discretion of the judiciary. He meant that this is an evolving doctrine of the common law system that the judges themselves should in a way limit themselves. That's, an, I think, a very important distinction. But more importantly than that... In the balance of powers between the different branches exactly, of... Exactly, and managing... Uh, just imagine that this is the first move in a legislative process right. to limit the discretion of the court. That's very problematic in terms of separation of powers. But more than that, when Justice Solberg published this article a few years ago, he had in mind one change, a small change in isolation, in lab conditions. He never imagined such a change that would come as a first stage in a series of other changes, such as changing the way judges are selected, such as limiting judicial review uh, in constitutional review, et cetera. So I'm quite sure I haven't spoken with Justice Solberg, but I'm quite convinced that he doesn't feel comfortable with the use or abuse that is now being made on his behalf. You know, um, this is a fascinating conversation and I would be just thrilled to take it into a whole hour, but I really wanna, I have a few more quick questions for you. You know, prominent coalition and Likud members claim that this part of the judicial overhaul is, is meaningless. It's nothing more than a, a vague reminder of the original overhaul that the coalition had, had in mind. That you, you referenced at the very outset, you mentioned that at the beginning it was a whole package and now it's just a, a one slice of it. Might it not be, and again, it's not a judicial question, and I know you're a, a, a professor, but I want to ask you as a, you know, a reasonable player in this super important arena, might it not be wiser to recognize this withdrawal of the coalition and give them some sort of a, a, an achievement or a ladder to climb off this, this very dangerous tree? So this was actually discussed among the coalition and the opposition in their uh, deliberations or negotiations under the hospice of the president's house. And people have spoken, some politicians have spoken about limiting reasonness, but in response, there should have been also some kind of end of claims. Make right. us sure that that's right. the end of the story. Right. You go back to the same point of this might be a small thing, but what you're planning is what they call the salami, one slice at a time. Exactly. And, and the, the, the reason why we fear of the salami is not just, you know, we're crying wolf. The high level politicians within the coalition, when they are being interviewed, this is precisely what they say. They say, yes, we are doing it the salami system, slice by slice, instead of a big wave as was originally planned, we're now right. bringing in small drops. And to my mind, I have to admit, being a student of comparative constitutional law, I find this highly silly. Because when, when, when populist leaders in other countries have taken the salami system, the incremental erosion of democracy, it was you know, just precisely in order not to reveal the big plan. But now the coalition already from the outset are telling us, yes, this is our big plan. This is the big puzzle. And this is incrementally how we're going to get there. And this is not very reassuring. Right. Um, one last question before we go. 
on the face of it, like I said before, it seems like a legal discussion, but underneath the surface, there is so much more that's being raised and at stake, you know, recognizing the fact, Professor, that other parties, including those in the current opposition, had similar thoughts about um, a reform or a judicial overhaul in the Supreme Court and our uh, judicial system. How much of it is really yes Netanyahu, no Netanyahu, and how much of it is a legal discussion? Because the same ideas were raised by Gidon Saar's party, who was you know, one of the prime minister's main adversaries. I, I, I do not think that this is a yes Netanyahu, no Netanyahu deal. I think it is about yes liberal democracy and no liberal democracy. And the fact that because in January, and even slightly before that, the government began with this really huge blitz that would have completely undermined any checks and balances. I think vast uh, segments of the population here simply lost trust in the government. So once you lose trust or confidence in the government, people are saying, well, how, okay, let's say it's one small thing. How can we trust you that this will be the end of it? So I think the main issue is loss of trust. And I'm not sure how we can uh, regain that trust. Right, loss of trust. You know, we, we listen to you and that's exactly the message that we keep on hearing underneath bubbling like a like a, a super hot lava. Um, just, I, I really have to ask you this. Do you support going back to the president to resume negotiations between the two sides? I always support negotiations. I mean, my aspiration originally was to put this reform aside and to sit together, coalition opposition, in a transparent and open process and try to, to make this constitutional crisis a real constitutional moment right. in which the Israeli democratic system can, can get, you know, as a winner out of this process, that we can get a better constitutional order out of it. Because, and I have to, to mention that, to, if we have American listeners here, yes. I have to mention that Israeli constitutional order, if you compare it to other liberal democracies in the world, it is extremely an unstable system. If you look at all the other countries and take the US, the US has a rigid constitution right. where we have you know, two houses within the legislature. It's a federal system. Other countries in Europe are subordinated to the European Court of Human Rights or to the EU. We have none of these mechanisms of checks and balances. We have already a very strong executive that controls the legislature. So in these opening conditions, to bring more money, more power, sorry, to the executive, this would be a very high risk to our democratic order. Professor Rosnai, thank you so much for enlightening us with this very important information about the discussion taking place in Israel. This has been wonderful listening to you, and we look forward to hearing more from you in the future and hopefully for a, a peaceful resolution. Thank you very much. Thank you. Sarah Haetzny-Cohen is the head of the grassroots My Israel organization, a leading political commentator in Israel and a social activist. She's joining us today all the way from Israel. Sarah, welcome, and thank you for joining us on JBS. All the way from Jerusalem. Thank you for having me. All the way from Jerusalem. So let's dive straight to it. The reasonable clause and the Knesset passing the first part of the legislation one of the claims against it is that the sole purpose of this legislation is to get rid of the various administrative officials who may not be the yes men of this government, such as the attorney general appointed by the previous government without any need to provide justification or reason for it. How do you respond to this claim? Well, it has nothing to do with it. I mean, the reform that was represented at, at the beginning by, by uh, Yariv Levin, the minister Yariv Levin, 
um, it included four parts. One of them was the part that we are not, we're now talking about, and uh, you know, this is the um, the current volcano, um, and it has nothing to do with the with the rest. I mean, with what you just um, said. Uh, actually, it's the most minor uh, part of the whole reform that was represented a few months ago. It's the the the, the little thing of uh, that that is represented now. That what they're trying to, to pass is the meaningless uh, from all four parts of the reform. You know, I, I spoke earlier today with Professor Yaniv Roznai, who opposes, of course, the reform and all parts of it. And one of the claims that he made was that, true, this might be a small part, but this is part of the what he called the salami, slice by slice passage, rather than coming with the entire reform, let's pass the reasonable clause and then let's move on to the other items on the agenda. And this is how the, um, the protesters view this move by the government. How do you view it, Sarah? Is this the case? Is this the first slice of many? So I want to share with you uh, how it looks like, okay? So at Please. the beginning, when, when Minister Yariv Levine represented the whole reform, you know, the whole package, they said, oh my God, this is a blitz, it's too much. Right. Um, you're ruining the democracy because you also want to uh, to choose the judges and you want to restrict it, uh, different uh, advise, legal advisors, et cetera, et cetera. Right. So they said, okay, it's too much, do it slowly do you let's talk about things let's get into you know uh, uh cooperation and negotiation and then the government of israel listened to the, the streets and to the voices the very deep voices of 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 the people and decided to freeze the the all the the process of the reform and right. they freezed it and they went into the the a process of negotiation at the president's uh, uh House. Okay, so and then the the opposition uh, decided that they quit the the, uh, the negotiation. It's the opposition, not not the coalition. So this is these are the facts. So first they called it blitz. They said it's too much. You're doing uh, the whole package is too much. Bring some of it. Let's talk about things. And now they call it the salami. Uh, um, they call it salami, and you're just trying to, you know, to hide and not uh, bring your uh, your your uh, intentions. Um, so what do you want? You want the government to sit and do nothing? You want the government to resign? Are you, they are using excuses uh, for uh, apparently? It's all excuses because when it was the whole package, they said it's too much. It's not democratic. And now when they do it step by step and by negotiating and, you know, changing and listening to, to the public and to, to different uh, professionals, they say, it, oh, no, you're just trying to do the salami and um, just to conquer your, your, your intent, you know, your intentions are the same and you're just doing it another way. So, so what, do, what actually do they want? So let me ask you, Sarah, you mentioned the discussions hosted by Israel's President Herzog. We heard calls by Benny Gantz and Yari Lapid to resume these negotiations. Wouldn't it be better, in your opinion, to move in, the, in this path, down this path, in a negotiated, compromised manner, rather than in a one-sided manner? Well, definitely. 
I'm a big supporter of, of negotiation. I think that that this is the interest of, of you know, of, of the Israeli state and for, for all of us that uh, this very important uh, uh, process and, and change will happen uh, by negotiation, by, you know, agree, uh, vast agreement. Um, but here's the but. So it, there were negotiations at the beginning, sorry, at the beginning, President Herzog said, I'm going to bring uh, a plan to the table. And then all eyes of all Israelis, literally, really, our eyes were, we were looking forward his, um, his plan. Uh, and when he put it on the table, it was so extreme, so extreme left that nobody could accept it. And even from, you know, from, you know, soft right political um, that are not big fans of this uh, reform, when they saw Herzog's, um, the president's first uh, plan, they were shocked and they said, okay, if this is the way, so we're, we're, we're supporting the reform. Um, so it switched everything up. So this was the first step. The second step was when the government decided to freeze the, the, the reform and freeze all the process of, of passing the laws and go to, uh, to the president's uh, house to, you know, to negotiate. Right. And so they did for what, a month or, or so for a few weeks. Right. Uh, and and then, we were ever so hopeful that something might come out of it. Definitely. I'm a, I'm a supporter of the reform and I'm also a supporter of, of negotiation and vast agreement. And I followed every, you know, every letter that came out from, from the room of, of, you know, from the closed room. Uh, but uh, surprise, surprise, the opposition decided one-sided to withdraw and to quit the, the negotiation. And now that they're asking to, to renew it. So, you know, that's not a game. This is our life. I mean, that's, this, is, this, is, this is so important. Why did you quit the, the, the negotiations? Why did you do it? So, so assuming, Sarah, assuming that they were in the wrong for quitting negotiations, um, assuming that we accept the position that that was a mistake, whatever it was, Regardless of the past, shouldn't we move forward now, immediately go back to the negotiating table for the coalition to hold continued legislation for the two sides to sit together wherever they want, whether it's under the auspices of the president or someone else, and just reach a compromise, especially in these times, you know, right before Tisha B'Av, and we all know the dire history of, of our people in this regard? Definitely. Definitely. I, I just don't think we need the president for it, really. These are our leaders. These are, our, they, they will decide if we'll go on a war or we'll go on a, you know, on a, in a, in a economic crisis. These are the people who are going to decide on our future. So can't they just sit and talk between them? The, the negotiation in the, 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 the level of faith um, of trust of the Israelis in the negotiations uh, in, 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 that's happening now in the, they're not they're on freeze now but right. that, that happened in uh, uh, under the the president's um, house right. um, yeah so, so the, the faith and the trust is very low I believe that these leaders can sit together and and negotiate and you know, come together with with even 
they don't need to agree upon everything. They can agree upon two parts of the reform, even one part. Take the, the, the part that it was started to, to pass in the, in the Knesset, in the parliament a few days ago, and negotiate on it. You don't need to negotiate the whole package, okay? Bring right. law by law. Let's do it slowly. Let's do it smartly. But right. uh, they, they don't, uh, we, what I get, you know, my, my impression that it's just excuses. And it's so, I'm so sad. I mean, it's such, such a big No, it's really, it's really distressing because you're right. What we see is a, a legal discussion on the face of it, but there is so much more underneath, you know, distrust and right. other issues that have nothing to do with the legalities. But I want to tap into your wisdom as a political commentator and pundit. Um, what, in your opinion, why is this judicial overhaul so important to this coalition that it's willing to face dire economic consequences, international consequences? We, we're seeing what's happening between the U.S. and Israel, the internal ramifications of everything that's happening within Israeli society as a result of this move. Shouldn't the coalition, which has the power of governance, just put the whole thing on hold? and freeze the situation so that it doesn't further deteriorate until a resolution is found. But instead of it, they continue the discussion in the committees in the Knesset, thus antagonizing more and more many members of the public. What do you think? So I'm a supporter of this coalition. I voted for it. And I, I'm expecting, you know, that the, that this coalition and especially Ariv Levin, who was who was uh, elected in the first in, in the first uh, spot in the first place in the in the uh, primaries of the. Who's Nikur. currently the Minister of Justice leading the reform? Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I I expect them to fulfill their promises, and they promised not only. Uh, in these elections, but also before, and this is a, a, a we're talking and we're debating this issue, and we're hoping for a change um, for I don't know over a decade. Okay, the the political right in Israel is is talking about this and emphasizing how important it is to create a change to to fix our judicial system. Sarah, um, Sarah, let's let's focus on what you just said. Why is it so important? Explain to our viewers who are not very, uh, uh, you know, in, in the mix of all of this in Israel, why is this so important to the governing coalition? So I'll give you an example. I, I'll tell you, I'll tell you in, in one sentence and then, then I'll, I'll give an example. So um, we believe and we know that a lot of, of main issues that uh, are very, that, that are broken now uh, of judicial uh, uh, system of our judicial system is standing in the base of different uh, very important issues uh, in the Israeli society security um, immigration um, building you know building in a, a lot of a lot of uh, 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 internal security a lot of issues that are you know they are in the heart of of, of the Israeli society in the heart of, of our life, uh, they are including uh, different uh, um, issues that are stopped by judicial uh, our judicial system. And we believe that in order to promote and in order to get better immigration and better security and better economy uh, we and less bureaucracy, 
we need to fix different things in our judicial reform. We don't want to break it. We don't want to cancel it. We just want to fix it. Um, so this is the, you know, this is a statement. Now, now let me give you a very, a very uh, new uh, example that just happened today in Israel. Here it's the afternoon, and we it, this morning, uh, the Supreme Court once again canceled another uh, another law of the Knesset, another law of the Parliament um, that that was. I want, I'm not going to elaborate on this, but it was connected to immigration. So the the minister of, of the, the government of Israel and the parliament decided that in order to, to uh, manage better the immigration to Israel, they need a certain law. And the, the Supreme Court just canceled it this morning. And after they canceled, a bunch of laws of immigration laws in the past. So the government cannot govern and they cannot serve me as a citizen. Why? Because it's broken, because we need to fix it. Once again, we don't want to cancel anything. We don't want to cancel the courts. Of course not. We don't want we, to. We, we definitely we definitely hear the concern. And to add, um, to add another element to it, our viewers heard in my conversation with Professor Rosnai that uh, one of the justices of the Supreme Court, uh, Noam Solberg, um, he was actually, you know, who spoke about reasonableness. If I'm not mistaken, Sarah, he was the opposing view in the judgment that you're mentioning. The only one. The this only is, one. You know, he, this is how um, hegemonic and uh, homo, sorry, homogenic our Supreme Court is, that in such an important law that, you know, that that talks about the immigration to, to Israel, there was only one judge that was against the, the uh, you know, another six. Sarah, um, just, uh, just because we're short of time, let me ask you one last question. In your opinion, do you believe there is a way for both sides to settle these issues amicably and to reach a compromise? Of course. Of course. I mean, we fight together. We work together. We right. are. And there are so many challenges out there from Iran to Jenin to the Hezbollah tents in the north to Gaza and beyond. We know Correct. what we're facing. Correct. And we have to, we have to, you know, we have to work together and I believe we can do it. And I also want to, to put, you know, to, to, to say another thing. Um, the, there are some leaders of the protesters that are so extreme and they're pushing their politicians, the opposition politicians, they're pushing them to the extreme side. And this is not what, uh, that, how it's supposed to work. They, I, I, there are extremists in every side, but we have to, they have to understand that negotiation and best agreement is the interest of, of this state and this country and this society. And, and we don't have to run, run back to the president. You know, he's not a, a teacher or a mother. No, we can, they can talk together and get the vast agreement without any uh, any external uh, interfere. Amen, amen, amen to that. Thank you so much, Sarah, for taking the time to uh, joining us all the way from Jerusalem 
and uh, sharing with us your perspective of this very crucial matter these days in Israel. Todaraba, thank you. Thank you, Toda. Thank you for having me. Thank you both, Professor Rosnai and Sarah, for your insights into this controversy that is tearing Israel apart today. In light of Israel's ongoing challenges, we can only hope for quieter times for Israel and for the Jewish people, especially in this period of time just ahead of Tish Abeav, symbol of the tragic fall of Israel of old, whose consequences we still feel today. May we all learn the lesson. Thank you all for watching and to all stay safe and stay healthy. I'd like to thank our director, Sloan Copeland, JBS's acting CEO, Dara Golub, our technical manager, Michael Paley, transmission manager, John McDevitt, and to our wonderful producer of In The News, the one and only Carol Lilienthal. For JBS, I'm Shahrazani. Until next time, shalom and later.